In John chapter 10 and verse 14, Jesus tells us that He's the Good Shepherd and His sheep know Him. And Psalms chapter 23 is a psalm by David. And David was a shepherd in his younger days. He watched his father's sheep. And so he understood the responsibility that a shepherd had. And he also realized the responsibility that a sheep would have. And when we talk about Christ being our shepherd and God being our shepherd, we realize that we are the sheep of His pasture. And that He cares for us and that He watches over us. And I wonder how many of us were thankful for the fact that God is our shepherd. That He does watch over us. And I want to concentrate on one phrase of that psalm, and that is, He restoreth my soul. What a blessing it is to know that God restores our soul, makes it possible so that we can have that comfort. We know that He is a shepherd. And it's like the little girl said, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. Well, that's really all we should want, the Lord to be our shepherd. And so we need to understand what He does for us because life is tough at, at, at its best. Life is tough. We get beat up. We get discouraged. We get depressed. We get disappointed. We realize that we have failures. We have fatigue, frustration, and sometimes many fears. I believe all of us probably have hidden hurts that we hide behind with our smiles. But we realize that we carry wounds and battle scars and emotional baggage. But God wants to restore our soul. God wants us to have joy in our heart. And David was one of those individuals that realized that when joy had left, that he wanted it restored. Because he asked God to restore unto him the joy of his salvation. And one of the reasons that he lost that joy was because of the sin that he was involved with with Bathsheba. And so God is willing, as He was with David, to restore his soul. He's willing to restore your soul and my soul. And so the question is, how does He do this? Well, there are three things or three changes that He can make in our lives. You see, He can remove your guilt. He can remove your grief. And He can replace your grudges. And those are the three areas that I want to look at this morning. And I'm sure that there's other areas that He can work on in our lives. But these three, I think, are very important. Because we realize that sin is involved in our lives. We realize at one point before we became a Christian that we woke up and we realized that we needed to have our sins washed away by the blood of Christ. And so God can remove our guilt he can remove that from us if we will allow Him to do so. In Psalm chapter 38, verses 4 and 5, listen to what it says. It says, My iniquities have gone over mine head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. Have you ever seen someone, maybe you've had it happen to you, where you wounded, you were hurt in some way. You cut yourself, and it was a deep cut or a deep wound, and you had it bandaged up. And it came time to take that bandage off. And you noticed that there was an odor about it. It wasn't pleasant. And that's really what this is talking about. The picture that it's trying to point or point us out or point out to us is that when we wound ourselves, when sin comes into our life, it hurts us. 
And it causes some problems in our lives. And we realize that that wound, if it stinks, there's something bad wrong and it needs to be taken care of. And that's what David realized that he needed his sin taken care of. You see, that person in Psalms chapter 38 was plagued with guilt. And there's two problems that we have with guilt. We all have plenty of reasons to be guilty. None of us are perfect. Sometimes we say things and we do things that hurt. And we all sin. And we think that we get away with it, but we can't get away away from it. So how do we deal with guilt in our lives? There are lots of options that people have. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. We can deny that it exists. We can pretend that it doesn't exist in our lives. We can try to bury it, hold it back, but that doesn't work. It's still alive and it still is eating at us. We can deny that guilt doesn't exist and we can minimize it. We can say it's no big deal. You know, we'll get through it. But we know that it's there. It's a scar. It's a wound. And if it's no big deal, then why do we still remember it? Why does it still happen in our memories? Why do we play it over and over again? You see, minimizing, minimizing it does not work. And so we may try to rationalize it. We say, well, everybody's doing it. Everybody does it. But we know that that's not true because everybody doesn't do it. Even if they did, what we may be doing that's wrong it still isn't right. And we need to understand that. That if everybody else is doing it and it's wrong, it's still wrong in our sight, in God's sight. And when I try to rationalize it, I'm trying to put my head over my heart. But the heart will always win out. The most common thing to do with guilt is that we beat ourselves up with it. We administer self-punishment. We don't see ourselves as God sees us. And sometimes when we're eat up with guilt, we don't see the value of our soul. We don't see our value as God looks at us and sees our value. Because He sees us, even when there's sin in our lives, He sees someone there that is valuable to Him and He's willing to do something to help. Sometimes with guilt, we feel less than human. And we see ourselves with little importance at all. So we tell ourselves, we don't deserve to succeed. And so I'll just live in my guilt. But none of those work. We can rationalize it. We can say everyone else is doing it. We can do all kinds of things. But none of those things work. The only solution to guilt is to have God take care of it. Give it to Him. And that's the promise that we find there in Psalms 23 where it says He restores my soul. You see, there's things that we do in life we can't go back and redo. But we need to give it to God. 
And I think that you should mark that verse in your, in, in your Bible if you haven't already marked it. Because it's valuable to know that only the Lord, our shepherd, can restore our soul. So how does He do that? Well, He does that through Jesus Christ. The most basic truth of Christianity is that Jesus has already paid the price for our sins. I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus paid the price for all of our sins. Those that we're going to do in the future, those that have been done in the past, Jesus paid the price. He's already paid the, the, the bill, if you might, you might say. You see, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, it tells us that she shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4, he gave himself for our sins. In fact, it's part of the gospel message that we're to take out into all the world and preach to the world. And that part gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15 chapter and verse 3 and 4 says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. That's the message of the gospel that He died for our sins. All of mankind's sins. And everything that you've done wrong, He's already paid the price for it. The stuff that you've already done, the stuff that you're going to do, the stuff that you may do in the future, Jesus has already paid the price for it. When we mess up, when we have those accidents, you know, when we make a mistake, we call it many different things. But when we sin, whatever word you want to use there, it's all been paid for. And that's the good news. That's why He can restore our soul. That's why Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sin and my sin. And no psychiatrist or psychologist can remove your guilt. They don't have the power to forgive your sin. Only God has that power. Only God, the Good Shepherd, can remove our sin and restore our soul. So how do we get forgiveness? Because you see, that's something that's very important. How do we get that forgiveness? Well, we trust in Him. We don't beg Him. We don't bribe Him. We don't bargain with Him. We just trust Him. That if we do what He's told us to do, we trust Him that He will wipe away that sin and remember it against us no more. Why do we trust or believe that? Because that's what He says that He will do. And so when we trust Him and obey Him, which is very important, we believe what He says, we trust it and we obey it. Then Jesus can have that sin washed away by the blood that He shed on the cross. You say, well, I trust Jesus. I believe in Him. Yet I still feel guilty. Maybe that means that we don't understand the forgiveness of God. You see, when God forgives us, guess what? He stops your computer from working. God forgives us, it's immediate. It's free. It's complete. It's unconditional. And forgiveness takes care of your sin the first time we comply with what God has told us. 
You see, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21, he says, "...which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water." At the like figure, where unto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here we see Peter, what's he comparing our salvation to? He's comparing it to Noah when Noah built the ark. And he prepared that ark. God gave him the instructions on what to do. How big, how wide, how tall, what to put in it, what to, how many windows, doors. And God told him all the instructions. And Noah, by faith, moved to build that ark. But they had to go into that ark in order to be saved. And then what does it say they were saved by? Water. And then, what's that next word? The like figure. Whereunto even baptism doth now also save us. It's a picture of that water raising them up out of that sinful world. We see that in likewise, or in like manner, when we go down in that watery grave of baptism, that water separates us from that sinful world that we existed in. There's no magic potion in the world in that, in that formula. It's the fact that we've obeyed what God has told us to do. That we are buried with Him in baptism. We wash away our sins. Because that's what He was told was told to Saul in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. When Ananias went to Saul, he said, Why tarry thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We call on the name of the Lord by doing what the Lord's told us to do, and then we're calling on Him to do what He said He would do by washing away our sin when we are obedient to that gospel. And so that's how we can have the forgiveness of sin as someone who's not a Christian. We obey that gospel and we're baptized into Christ. We're put into the church like Noah and his family went into the ark. We're added to the Lord's church. Outside of that net, for that organization that God's given us, we don't find salvation. So as Noah had to be in the ark, it says eight souls were in that ark. They were saved by water. Those that are added to the Lord's church are saved unless we go back into the world. And so we want to be a part of God's family because the church is the body of Christ. And now as a Christian, we may sin. I told a story about the missionary that had gone overseas and had taught people the gospel, and somebody had obeyed the gospel, and they were very faithful. They were at every service and out doing the work and teaching people the gospel, and very active in the work of the church. And then all of a sudden, they stopped. And the missionary was concerned because he knew this individual was very active, but now all of a sudden stopped. He didn't come to the services. He wasn't involved with the people. He didn't do anything. And they went to visit him. And he found out that he had committed a sin. And that individual thought that there was no way back, that after he committed that sin, he was just lost again. He needed to be taught what First John chapter 1 says. He hadn't heard that. He hadn't read that. And so he thought that he'd gone back into the world that was no hope for him. God wants us to realize He can restore our soul as a Christian. Because sometimes we let ourselves down. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we give in to the temptations and we sin. 
And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, he tells us if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word all is a wonderful word when you look at it in that passage of Scripture. Why? Because how much sin does God cleanse us of? Part? Some? A little bit? No, He cleanses us from all sin. It's like getting a check from somebody that owes you money. It's there. They've given it to you. You know the check's good. But until you go to the bank or until you go to an ATM or until you scan it on your phone, whatever, how you cash it, you don't have the funds in your account. But it's good. God has promised us forgiveness, but we have to do something in order to obtain it. We have to do His will. We've got to do what He's told us to do. And that involves our belief, our faith, our confession, our repentance, and then baptism. And then as a Christian, it involves our confessing our sin and asking God's forgiveness. And so it's paid for. The sin's paid for, but God tells us what we need to do in order to receive it. And when we receive it, it tells us that our sins are washed away. You know, when you put something dirty in the laundry and it goes through the washing machine, it comes out clean in most cases. But have you ever had to go and dig into that plumbing, clean out something that that pipe may be clogged? It's got all that dirt and that grime in that pipe, and I've seen people like, you when they had to do something like that, because it's disgusting. It's sickening. You don't want to pull that stuff back out. I wonder how God feels when He's washed it away, but we kind of go to the drain and we pull it back up and we want to carry it around with us again. God restores our soul. That sin's washed away. And it's blotted out to be remembered against us no more. He asks us to forgive others, and if we don't, then, then we're not going to be forgiven. We've been studying that on Sunday morning in our Bible class. But if God forgives your sins when you're baptized, and if He forgives your confessed sins, shouldn't we do that for ourselves? Shouldn't we allow God to restore our soul that's been destroyed by sin? Let God remove that guilt. What else does God do? God relieves our grief. Sometimes we suffer. Not because of what we've done, but because of what others have done to us. Sometimes we suffer when we see other people suffer. Someone's hurting, we hurt because we love them, we care for them, and we need to remember that this world is this isn't heaven. This is earth. And people hurt. And sometimes we feel lonely. And sometimes our hearts get broken. And sometimes we experience sorrow and loss and grief. But Remember what the psalmist said, He restoreth my soul. He can help me get through those difficult times. And remember that David was the one that wrote the 23rd Psalm, and so he was very acquainted with death, as you know, from his life. You remember the story in Second Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, and we're given some tips in chapter 12 on how we can deal with some of this grief that we may have in our lives. Remember that David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed. He 
did some terrible sins, and so oftentimes that's the way sin works. That when you start, you get involved with. You may think that it's only going to affect you here, but it starts to snowball, and that's what happened in in David's case. That he was on a roof, he looks over and he lusts after Bathsheba. He sins for her. He commits adultery with her. Then she's with child, and then he wants to cover it up, so he brings her husband back, and then he ends up having her put having him put to death in the in the battle. His that just walking on the roof. Because you see, he's a king. He should have been out in battle, but he was walking on the roof. And it just snowballed into something bigger and bigger. That's what happened with David. And he carried that guilt with him until he confessed his sin. And we see that confession take care, take place in, in uh, Psalms chapter 51. And if you're having guilt... In your life, I think that that's a good passage of Scripture to read. Psalms chapter 51. But we know the whole story. And the whole story is that Bathsheba, when she became pregnant, that child was born. And it was born, when it was born, it was very sick. And David grieved over what he had done. He'd fasted and he prayed. And I would imagine David would be like many of the rest of us if we were in that situation and we were talking to God. We would tell him that the child had done nothing wrong. That I'm the one that did it. And that's, I'm sure, what David was, was pleading with God for. But we know that the baby died anyways. And what did David do with his grief after that baby died? He did three things. He accepted what He could not change. There's some things in life that happen we can't fix. We can't put it back together. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, and verse 22 and 23, it says, And He said, Well, the child was yet alive. I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. What was David thinking about here? He was thinking about his loss. He was thinking that he's not going to have the child with him anymore, but he knew where the child went, and he was committing himself that I can go there. I can go where that child's at. And so he's turning it over to God. And then we also see that he focused on what he had left as opposed to what he had lost. And many times I think that that's a problem that we have in, in our situations that we deal with on a, in our daily life. Is that oftentimes we focus on that one thing that we've lost and we forget all the other good things that we have in this life. And if you've lost someone, you need to remember you still have other family members that are there. And in chapter 12 and verse 24, it says, David comforted Bathsheba his wife. He realized that she was still there. He still had other family members. Yes, there was consequences that he was going to have to deal with, but he's focusing on what he's got left. And really, that's what helps us to get through situations. We're reminded many times when we go to a funeral that the deceased is gone, but remember those memories that you have. Remember the, the, the fellowship that you have with your brothers and sisters, your siblings. 
And remember all those good times. Think about those and, sh- and remember those. Share what you have instead of dwelling on what you don't have. And then we see this is what He did that helps us all. He turned to God. In Psalms 51, verses 11 and 12, He says, "...cast me not away from Thy presence, and take not that Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of Thy salvation, and uphold me with Thy free spirit." David realized that he had a loss. He lost that child. But he needed to have that joy back. The only person that can bring joy to us is God. God is there to help us. And when we're grieved, we can remain a prisoner of our pain or we can turn it over to God. Does that mean that you're not going to be uh, sorrowful? Does that mean you're not going to be sad? There's always going to be occasions that we're sad. There's always going to be difficult times, especially when someone we love has passed from this life. We think about those people oftentimes. But we need to be focused on God. And when we grieve, we can remain a prisoner to that pain or we can turn it over to God. But that's the choice that we have. So we can focus on God. We can accept what's taken place. We can focus on what we have as opposed to focusing on the loss. Well, we can turn to God. And God will help us through that. I've said many times uh, at funerals before, if, you know, when someone's not a Christian and they have no faith, they're not members of any church. I don't know how they get through it. Because I think most of us realize that we take comfort in knowing that someone is prepared, that someone is ready. And guess what? If they're in heaven, we can go to them. That's what God has done for us. God helps us through those difficult times, so yes, He can restore our soul. And third, let God replace your grudges. Grudges come when we hold on to hurt that other people have caused us. We get mad at them, and we won't let the anger go. The people may not even know or had not even planned to intentionally hurt us. But nonetheless, we got hurt just the same. And so we develop a grudge and we won't let go. We feel guilt when we hurt people. We feel grief when we suffer a loss, but we hold on to grudges when someone has caused us pain, caused me pain. And guess what? In this world, we're going to be hurt. Life isn't fair. Life isn't always fair. And we're going to suffer pain. And we're going to get bumped and we're going to get bruised and we're going to be scraped and we're going to be scratched and we're going to be dinged up as we go through this world. It's sort of like that you know, that car. You buy that new car and you park it in the parking lot and for the first few months you park it way out in Timbuktu so that nobody bangs their door into it. And then the next thing you know, you start pulling up to the front. And then the next thing you know, you look, you got a little door ding. Next thing you know, you got another little scratch from somebody else. That's the way life is. Sometimes we get beat up. Sometimes we get dinged up. How do we handle it? It'll make, it can make you either bitter or better. 
And I want you to notice when you write those two words down that the difference between the two is I. How do you handle? How do I handle that situation? Do I become bitter or do I become better? And what do we do with the hurt when it's piled up? And do we allow the emotional garbage to exist in our lives and to remain there? You see, we can become angry with people who hurt us. And it can develop into a grudge where we want to get even. But look what Job says. In Job chapter 5 and verse 2, For wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. Why? Because wrath, revenge, and envy are self-destructive. You build a prison around yourself and you just won't get out. They hurt you. They cause broken relationships. They make a person bitter. They hurt you in the now, in the present time. And that's foolish. Because the reason you hold a grudge is because of something that's hurt you in the past. The past is over. It doesn't need to last forever. You see, your past can hurt you today. And it can't hurt you today unless you keep playing it over and over and over in your mind. Don't allow that to happen. You see, the person who hurts you may not even be alive. I've talked to people before that are still dealing with hurt from people that have been dead for years. You can't go back and change it. Turn it over to God. Let Him have it. He can handle it. You see, they're still hurting you from the grave because you won't let go. And how many people here today are in that boat well, they're just holding on to it and they won't let go. And I think that we have to be seriously honest with ourselves. We need to look in the mirror and examine ourselves. Do we really hold grudges or not? Or do we let go? You see, you can't bury your angry with anger with them and you won't let them re, uh, let your resentment go. But you need to. Because all you're doing is hurting yourself. And many times you're hurting the relationships that you're involved with today. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 19. It says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, saith the Lord. Turn it over to God and let Him take care. This person that hurts you, they haven't gotten away with anything unless they've taken care of their sin and you're still holding a grudge. If they haven't taken care of it, God's going to take care of it for you. And I guarantee you, He'll do a much better job than you will in handling it. Because He knows all the circumstances. He knows all of what went on. So don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, God says. I'll take care of it. In other words, don't hold a grudge. Don't get take vengeance into your own hands. That's God's job, not yours. And He will eventually make everything right. That's His job. 
He's the judge of the world. You are not. Get rid of your bitterness. Stop holding grudges. Doesn't that Scripture teach us that if we forgive, we'll be forgiven? That's important. How well have you forgiven others? Completely? Totally? If you've been forgiven, then God expects you to forgive others. And think about the hurt that we've caused to God. Think of the hurt that Saul caused to the church, but God was willing to save him. He wants everybody to be saved. And He can let go of it. And He lets go of it immediately. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, "...and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors." How many strings do you attach when you forgive someone? You see, we feel guilt when we hurt others, but when others hurt us, we hold on to it and it develops into something it shouldn't. We want others to forgive us, but we have a difficult time forgiving others. God has forgiven us and we should forgive others. Jesus made it very plain in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, when He says that if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That verse is kind of a scary verse. Because again, we have to look in the mirror and we need to be honest with ourselves. Have we forgiven like we're supposed to? Because if we have not, then God's not going to forgive us. You see, we need to shepherd. We don't need a self-help book to deal with our guilt or our grief or our grudges. We need the Good Shepherd. We need God to help us. And He's there and willing to do so. You see, He's already helped you deal with your damaged emotions. And He'll help us in many different areas of our lives if we will allow Him to do so. Because we realize that He's a shepherd. He provides for us. A shepherd provides food and shelter and basic necessities. God does that for us. A shepherd protects against enemy attacks. And you see where David fought off a wild beast that were attacking the sheep? He did those things. God helps to protect us. As a shepherd, He guides us. And where He guides us will lead us to heaven if that's where we want to go. But if we want to get off the path, we can go astray. But He's always seeking for us to come back. He's looking for us and He's wanting us like the father in the story of the prodigal son. God is always waiting for us to come home. As a shepherd gathers his sheep, our good shepherd will gather us someday. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, as the Scripture says. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. The story is told of a great orator that would go from city to city, and people knew who he was, and they would, he was very well known. And he would do readings and people would flock to hear him, hear him read those stories or whatever he had to read. And he went into one particular city and there where he assembled, there was many people that had gathered to listen to him as he told stories and read from uh, different books and different things. And at the end of the, the presentation, he would always ask, is there something that you would like for me to read? And there was an old man there that day, kind of bent over as he walked, 
kind of had one of those crooked fingers that you point with, and he held up his hand. And the orator asked him, what would you like for me to read? He said, I would like for you to read the 23rd Psalm. And he said, I'll do this. I'll read the 23rd Psalm. If when I'm done, you'll read the 23rd Psalm. And so the orator stood up in all of his glory and read the 23rd Psalm. Very dramatic. And when he was finished, the crowd clapped and cheered. and everything. Everybody was so excited. And then he said, now it's your turn. And the old man stood up from the chair where he was at and he started to quote the 23rd Psalm. His voice cracked, sounded weak, was very humble. And when he was done, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And people wanted to know what was the difference. Why did they applaud for you? And everybody's kind of crying for him. He said, the difference is, I know the psalm. He knows the shepherd. That's really our problem sometimes. We know what the Bible says, but do we know the shepherd? Do we allow Him to work in our lives to restore our soul? Do we trust Him? Do we put our faith in Him? Do we know the shepherd? If you need to respond to the invitation this morning, you can do so by having a seat up here on the front row while we stand and sing.